If you are our guest today or if this is one of your first times here, we would love it if you would fill out the connection card. You find these in the seat in front of you. If you just give us some information about yourself, you can drop this in the offering bag. We will we'll pass it after the, the message today. Also wanted to draw your attention on the back. There's a place where you can check the weekly Lenten reading guide. And so Lent is the season leading up to Easter. And we are mailing out, emailing out a, a weekly reading guide. And then each week there are five scriptures. Three of those are kind of a follow-up to the message that you've just heard. And the other two anticipate the message that's coming up. And so it's just a way for you to go deeper and really kind of internalize the things that we're, we're talking about here on Sunday morning. And uh, if you if you already get the e-blast, uh, you should have gotten that on Wednesday. If you don't get the e-blast and you want the e-blast, check that box and you'll get the reading guide. If you don't want the e-blast and just the reading guide, just check that box. We don't want you to get things you don't want. So check that box. And you'll notice we, we also include these, these links to uh, Bible Project videos. And these are these little six to eight minute animated videos. And they're really pretty amazing. If you've never tried one, just, just try one. Uh, you might get hooked, though, I have to warn you. But, but they, they explain books of the Bible, the flow of the Bible, and biblical themes. And so we, we'll, we're including those in the reading guide. And so we, we really hope that's, that's helpful for you. Well, let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for times like this when we can gather together as one part of the body of Christ and lift our voices in prayer and in praise. And God, we do thank you for the way that you have designed the body of Christ. Uh, you have established many different individual churches here in Manhattan, and uh, we have many different strengths and weaknesses, uh, many different ministries and different types of outreach in different churches, and different demographics in different churches. And Lord, we believe this is all by your design. We ask it together that we would represent you well, that we would be faithful to your word and responsive to your spirit. We pray, God, that as a body of Christ, that we would not grieve your spirit or quench your spirit because of our sin, because of our hard-heartedness. But we ask, God, that we would represent you well, that we would experience unity and power uh, across denominational lines, across, across different churches. God, we ask that the prayer movement that you've raised up here in Manhattan would grow and mature. We pray that, God, you would answer our prayers in power and that we would see you do extraordinary things in our day in Manhattan and in the surrounding communities. God, we long to see many, many people come to Christ and experience you in all of your fullness. And so, God, for the body of Christ, we pray you give us transparency and boldness in our witness. We pray that our walks with you would be such that, that we would just natu naturally share our lives and share what you've done in our lives with those around us. God, we pray for those in our midst who are experiencing grief. We pray that you would give them comfort. We pray that you would give joy and hope to those who are discouraged and disheartened. We pray that even here today that you might give good gifts that would really sustain people in deep and abiding ways. God, we pray for our military families, especially those who have a loved one deployed to distant lands. We pray for the safety of those deployed. We pray that this time away would not be a time away from you, but it would be a time to seek you, a time to find you in new and deep ways. 
We pray for fathers and mothers, husbands and wives, sons and daughters of those deployed. We pray that you would keep them from fear and anxiety. We pray that they might experience a type of peace that surpasses even their own understanding. Take care of them by your spirit and by your people. We pray that that we as a church would be faithful in this way. God, this morning as we come to your word, we pray what the psalmist prayed. May my cry come before you, Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. May my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your promise. May my lips overflow with praise, for you teach me your decrees. May my tongue sing of your word, for all your commands are righteous. May your hand be ready to help, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, Lord, and your law gives me delight. Let me live that I may praise you, and may your laws sustain me. I have strayed like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I have not forgotten your commands. Father, we pray these things, and we ask that your word might find success in each of our hearts. We pray that we might have ears to hear what you would say to us. And so, God, it's with anticipation, it's with uh, a sense of expectancy that we come to your word today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we are starting a new sermon series, and we're entitling it Jesus' Present Ministry. If you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, you will see them describe uh, Jesus' past ministry, what Jesus did While he was here on earth, it was about 33 years. So the Gospels describe his birth, a little bit about his childhood, but mostly about these three years of his public ministry, what he taught, the miracles he did, the prophecies he made. And then it describes his crucifixion and his resurrection and how for about 40 days he appeared to his his followers. That's the Gospels. The rest of the New Testament also describes what Jesus is presently doing, what he is about in our day. And and so that's the topic of this sermon series leading up to Easter, Jesus' present ministry. And today we're going to seek to answer one simple question, where is Jesus now? Where is he right now? And there are a number of valid biblical answers to that question. For example, he's right here. He, he dwells within and among his people. Another answer is he's in heaven. Over and over we're told that God, that Jesus will return from heaven when he, he comes back. But perhaps the most precise answer to that question, where is Jesus now, is he is seated at the right hand of God. And we're told that in many different scriptures. One of those is Colossians 3.1. Paul wrote this. He said, therefore... If you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And so today we're simply going to discuss the significance of Jesus being seated at the right hand of God. And if you've never studied this or pondered this, you might be thinking, why does this matter? I've got it. Check. He's at the right hand of God. Well, the reason it matters is because this this one statement, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, 
it, it, uh, it describes a spiritual reality that affects every area of our discipleship. In other words, if we don't understand this, we're not going to really understand how to pray, what's, what, what goes on in spiritual warfare, why we should persevere. We're not going to understand how to seek God. For example, if we don't understand what it means to say Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, we won't understand what it means to seek, seek the things above since we have been seated with him. If we do understand it, though, it will actually fuel our walk with God in significant ways. And so you find in the New Testament, it often teaches this, that since Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, this is how you should pray. Since he's seated at the right hand of God, this is the confidence you have in spiritual warfare. Since he's seated at the right hand of God, you can imitate him in perseverance. And so in a very practical way, understanding what it means for Jesus to be seated at God's right hand can really fuel our faith in some significant ways. And it can give definition and nuance to our walk with God in ways that are really, really nourishing. Today, I'm not going to challenge you to to do anything, okay? I'm not going to give you three things I want you to try out this week. Today, I want to simply challenge you to believe. I want to challenge you to believe that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, okay? When I say believe, I'm talking about a deep, abiding, heartfelt confidence, So you're not just checking the box, yeah, I believe that. You're saying, no, I actually am confident that Jesus is at the right hand of God. And that nourishes my life and fuels my walk with God. And so what we're going to do is we're going to trace this this image of the right hand of God through the Old Testament into the New Testament and see really what, what what it means and uh, try to understand some of the significance of how that might fuel our faith. And we're going to begin by looking at the Old Testament background, and we're going to look at several references to God's right hand. And uh, I almost feel like I need to apologize to those of you who are are left-handed. I asked a friend this week, a left-handed friend, a left-handed friend, I said, does this ever bother you that it talks about God's right hand in in such amazing? He said, no, I never thought of that. It's not a thing. And so I hope hope that's the case for you. But apparently 90% of humans are right-handed. And so it's just a a common way we talk about the right hand. It's a way of talking about it's the dominant hand. Therefore, it refers to one's strength, one's competence, one's confidence you have when you're you're using your right hand. And that's the image image that is used of God as well throughout the Old, Old Testament. And so we find dozens of references. I didn't until I started studying this. I had no idea. But there are dozens of references to God's right hand. And of course, God the Father does not have a body like we do, right? So God the Father does not literally have arms and legs, hands and feet. So when it speaks of God's right hand, it's communicating something that is true about him, some spiritual reality that we, under, we need to understand. And the better we understand that imagery, the more we'll appreciate the reality of Jesus seated at the right hand of God. 
And so let's look at a few Old Testament references just to try to get a sense of the connotations that might have been in the minds of first century believers when they were told that God, uh, that Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father. The first one I want to look at is in Exodus 15, and that describes, uh, and there Moses refers to God's right hand in two different verses. He actually uses the term three different times. In the previous verse, you have this, this example, or you have the account of how uh, God delivered the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt. God parted the Red Sea. The, the children of Israel went through on dry land. When they got through, the Egyptian army came charging after them, and God caused the sea to, to flow back, and they perished in, the, in the, the water. And so in response, Moses wrote a song about it. That's what we do. We write songs about significant events. And so Moses wrote this song of deliverance. And we want us to notice that in this song, he made reference to God's right hand. We begin in uh, Exodus 15, 4. Pharaoh's chariots and his army, he, God, has cast into the sea, and the choicest of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep covers them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O God, shatters the enemy. And so God's right hand, it symbolizes, it symbolizes power and majesty. It symbolized that God was powerful enough to deliver his people. God's right hand had power and authority, not only authority over the Egyptian army, but authority over the elements, over the sea. And we see that in Jesus as well, right? But God the Father, his right hand is powerful, had authority over the, the sea, down in verse 12, still in Exodus 15, Moses says this, you stretched out your right hand, he's talking about the same event, you stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. And so when God reaches with his right hand, he is taking decisive action. His right hand is powerful. His right hand is able to deliver his people. And so uh, his right hand is an instrument of power, and when necessary, it's an instrument of judgment. If you are God's friend, if you are on his side, if you side with God, it also means that it's an instrument of deliverance for his people. But the image of God's right hand has many other connotations. For example, in Psalm 1611, we read this. David said, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. And so when David moved in close and he came into the presence of God and he lingered there, he found life and joy and pleasures. At his right hand, there are pleasures forever. Sometimes it's translated happiness. And so if you're a friend of God and you draw near to him, you will find that his right hand dispenses pleasure. If you've never moved in close enough, if you've never stayed there long enough, if you want pleasure, that's where you will find it. Real pleasure, abiding happiness, joy. We find other references in the Psalms which speak of God's right hand in different ways. In Psalm 17, the right hand of God is a place of refuge. Psalm 18, the right hand of God upholds me. Psalm 48, the right hand of God is full of righteousness. 
Psalm 60 says, God saves with his right hand. And so for the, the psalmist, the right hand of God reflected his character, and, and his, his character always informs his actions. And so the right hand of God represented who God is and what he does. And so if all these things are true, if these things are really true about God's right, right hand, then I think you'll agree with me that understanding his right hand and having access to his right hand is the most valuable access you could have anywhere in your entire life, especially if you're desperate, especially if you're helpless, especially if you need to be rescued, if you're joyless, if you're in circumstances that are so far beyond your control that only God could reach in and act. And so God's right hand, that if you have access to God's right hand, then you have access to God. Perhaps the pinnacle of references in the Old Testament to God's right hand is found in Psalm 110. And this is what we read, Psalm 110, verse 1. David writes, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so the word Lord, is the, it's translated Lord twice, but it's two different Hebrew words. The first word is Yahweh, which is the personal name for God. And so he says, Yahweh, God, the God of Israel, says to my Lord. And the second one is Adonai, which is just the common word for Lord or Master. So Yahweh says to my Lord, come up to this place of prominence, sit at my right hand. I'm putting you in this position of power and authority until your enemies are made for the, uh, until your enemies, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so this is a prophecy of David's Lord or his master. It's pretty enigmatic. We're not, this, this person isn't identified, but he is being elevated to Yahweh's right hand, this place of honor and power. And this, this verse was commonly understood to be a messianic psalm. It was a reference to the Messiah. It was a reference to this descendant of David who was promised he will sit on the throne of David forever. And so this, we'll come back to this, this verse. I think this, this verse is quoted more often than any other Old Testament verse uh, in the New Testament. But the Old Testament ends without this, this king, this Messiah, this Lord coming on the earthly scene and reigning at God's right hand. Uh, every Davidic, Davidic king, every descendant of David had proven to be inadequate, had proven to be flawed. Maybe Solomon is the guy. No, you find out pretty quick. He is not worthy to be elevated to the right hand of God the Father. And every successive king, the, this, this, this Lord who's elevated to the right hand of God is nowhere to be found. But the New Testament quickly identifies Jesus as that one. In Matthew 1 1, we read this the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. He is the one who's going to sit on the throne of David forever. The angel Gabriel appeared to Mary in Luke 1 and said this about her son He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. 
And so statements like this prompt us to read the Gospels with anticipation, these biographies of Jesus, and, and uh, with this anticipation that he is the king who will reign forever at the right hand of God. And of course, if you read the Gospels, you see that Jesus often said, basically in, in many different ways, I am that one, I am the Messiah, I am the one that, that was promised. I want us to just look at one statement Jesus made about himself in Luke 22. And uh, this is the night before his crucifixion, he had been arrested, and uh, we pick up the narrative in Luke 22, 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him. And they blindfolded him and were asking him, saying, prophesy, who is the one who hit you? And they were saying many other things against him. And they were blaspheming. And when it was day, the council of elders of the people assembled, both chief priests and scribes, And they led him away to their council chamber saying, if you are the Christ, tell us. And so notice what's happening here. Here are the the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities. They were having their way with Jesus. He was in this helpless condition. They beat him. They tortured him. They mocked him. They spat upon him. And then they come and ask him, tell us, are you the Christ? And so basically, that's one of those questions that, of course, he's going to say, yeah, it didn't work out. Yeah, I'm not the Christ. You're, you're, just, you're just abusing me any way you want. I'm powerless before you. Uh, but notice what Jesus says. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And so he's not going to answer them directly. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But then he makes this statement in verse 69. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, yes, I am. And then they said, what further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. And so they said, yeah, there, what, what else? Execute him, basically. If you got the reading guide this week, anticipating this passage, and you looked at the Bible Project video on the Son of Man, uh, you will remember that that was the title Jesus most commonly used for himself. Other people called him the Christ, but he almost never called himself the Christ. And so if Jesus were giving a, a name tag, hello, my name is, he would fill it in the son of man. That's the way he always referred to himself. And that's a term that uh, I had, I was talking to a student this week and he said, I really wish he wouldn't say that. I wish he would call himself the son of God. It just sounds so much more powerful. But if you watch the video, you'll know, actually that is a reference to Daniel chapter seven. And in Daniel seven, Daniel went, he, he, he went to sleep and he had this dream. And in this dream, there was this vision of these four fierce, bizarre hybrid beasts. And they all, they represented these four kingdoms and these four kings. And they trampled down the people. They trampled down the nations. But then Yahweh was called the Ancient of Days. Then Yahweh subdues these four beasts. He, he puts them under his, his authority. And then we read next 
uh, da what Daniel sees. We're in Daniel 7. Now, this is important to understand. We'll come back to Luke 22. But in Daniel 7, we read, Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of the heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And so in Jewish thought, in Hebrew thought, if you were the son of something, you belonged to that something. You were of that group. And so the son of man was a man. And so this was a human. Uh, it's just Adam. It's a, the common word for human. And so they saw this human coming on the clouds. And so on the one hand, he was human, but there are these clues that he was also divine. Uh, for starters, uh, he was coming with the clouds of heaven. That's an image that's associated with divine beings. And notice the status that was given to this son of man in the following verses. Daniel seven fourteen, And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And so there's a lot in that verse. Let me just point out two things. Number one, it said that people will serve him, and that's a status that was normally reserved for God. And number two, notice that this son of man would be given an everlasting dominion, glory, and a kingdom which will not be destroyed. That was meant to evoke the promise that was given to David. David, you're going to have a descendant. He's going to sit on your throne forever. And so this son of man in Daniel 7 is identified with that Davidic king, with that Messiah. The son of man is also the son of David who would reign forever. And so the, the scribes and the chiefs the chief priests and the scribes, all of this was running in their minds. They were Bible scholars. They had this down. They knew Daniel 7. They knew this vision. And so when Jesus mentioned, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God, they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. Again, Luke, 20, Luke 22, 69. He said, from now on, the Son of Man, and they knew that's how he referred to himself, will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And so Jesus basically, as he stand there bruised and bloodied and, and just ready to be crucified, he said, I am the guy in Daniel 7. I am the Son of Man, and I'm going to be seated at the right hand of, of the, the Most High. I'm the one who is going to dispense justice, power, pleasure, blessing, everything. Actually, I am that Davidic king. I am the descendant of David who will sit on his throne forever. And of course, that was ludicrous. You know what they asked him there in verse 70. And they said to him, are you the son of man? No, they said, are you the son of God? Then... And he said to them, yes, I am. The NIV translates it, so you say. Either way, Jesus was saying, you're right. And so Jesus, again, in this helpless state, he told them, they didn't believe him, he said, I am the son of man, I am the son of God. He's fully human, he is fully God, and he will reign 
forever. And so Jesus was very clear. He would occupy this place of authority and power. He's the one who would bring deliverance and protection and blessing and pleasure. Everything we read about the right hand of God in the Old Testament, Jesus said, I am the one who will dispense these things. And Jesus had told his disciples these things too over, over the years. But of course, they couldn't understand him. We're told they could not understand the idea of, of the Messiah being crucified and resurrected. He said, after I'm resurrected, then you'll get it. But he also promised, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will bring to your remembrance everything I've taught you. And he will lead you into all truth. That's in John 14 and 16. And this is one of the things that the Holy Spirit confirmed to the, the, the apostles and those that wrote the New Testament. The Holy Spirit confirmed to them that Jesus has indeed been elevated and raised to the right hand of the Father on high. He is the Son of Man. He is the Son of God. And so let's consider just one passage uh, that confirms this in the New Testament, and it's in Hebrews 1. And probably the book of Hebrews uh, discusses more fully than any other book in the New Testament about Jesus' present ministry. And one of the things it emphasizes is Jesus' place, where he is right now. In uh, Hebrews 1, the first four verses, we have this description of Jesus. He begins, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. He spoke in many portions. It didn't come all in one, here it is. No, he spoke here, he spoke here, many portions down through the centuries. And he spoke in, in a wide variety of ways. By contrast, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. He says, literally, he has spoken in a son. And by the description here, this son, we know, uh, this son is divine. He's an uncreated being because through him, all things were created. Notice how he continues. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. Then here's the statement. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. And so he, this son is Jesus who made purification of sins. And the imagery there is that sin pollutes us. It makes us unclean. And as we find out later in Hebrews, the blood of animals cannot permanently cleanse us from that pollution. But the blood of a sinless human, Jesus, can make purification of sins. And he says, after he made purification of sins, uh, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The fact that he is sitting means that his work is complete. In the Old Covenant, the priest never went into the Holy of Holies and sat down. Their work was never finished. Year after year, they brought the sacrifices. And the fact that he's seated, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high means that he is indeed the Messiah of Psalm 110.1. He is indeed the Son of Man of Daniel 7. Down in verse 13, Psalm 110.1 is quoted more fully. 
But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And the answer, of course, is none of them. None of them were given that place. This status is reserved for the unique Son of God, Jesus Christ. As I mentioned earlier, my only challenge to you today is to believe this on a heart level, is to believe that Jesus has been raised up and he's seated at the right hand of God. Can you imagine how vibrant your walk with God would be if you believe that on a deep, abiding, heart-level conviction. Can you imagine what it would be like? My perception, and be honest with you, my perception, honestly, is that American Christianity is often kind of boiled down to this idea that we need to keep positive, or we need to be pumped up, or we need to try hard. And all those things are probably, it's probably better than being positive, than, probably better than being negative. And trying hard is probably better than being passive and being pumped up is better than being deflated. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about deep spiritual realities that we are told about. This has been revealed. We didn't figure this out. This has been revealed so that we would understand it and so that we would believe it. And so it would form the way we walk with God. Next week, we're going to talk about, so what? What does this mean for our prayer life? Well, if Jesus is our great high priest and he's at the right hand of God, that means that we can come boldly to the throne of grace. We don't have to pray these timid, half-hearted, tepid prayers. No, we can come boldly before the throne of grace and he will dispense the grace and mercy that we need. That's what, what, what happens at God's right hand. He gives us what we need. Two weeks from now, we're going to talk about, so what? What does this mean for the spiritual battle? Well, if Jesus really is exalted at the right hand of God, far above every power, principality, and authority, above every evil spiritual being, that means we approach the spiritual battle from a place of victory, from a place of confidence. And people have all different, some people just ignore it altogether. I don't want to think about that. Other people kind of play it safe. I don't want to draw attention to myself from anything that might, anything evil that might hurt. No, we, 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 we fight the spiritual battle from a place of confidence and victory. We put on the full armor of God because Jesus is exalted above all the powers and we are seated with him. And so this is something to believe. This is something to, to, to own in a deep, deep place in our lives. Would you pursue that this week? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give us hearts to seek you this week, and we pray that this spiritual reality we've been discussing today, that it might occupy a central place in our hearts and our minds. We pray, God, that you would open our eyes. And God, we're probably in a lot of different places here when it comes to understanding this and believing this. And so we, we bring that before you, wherever we are in our, our different walks with you. We ask that you would move us to the next level, that you would give us deeper understanding, that this might become a reality for our lives. It really informs our expectations, informs the way we, we think and pray and live. And so, God, we look to you uh, now. We look to you this week. And Father, Jesus is the one who is exalted and so we worship him. We worship him in spirit and truth.